0: Well, good morning. I can't tell you how honored I am to be here again at uh, Wendover. Um, I'm going to steal somebody's school here. I probably won't use it. I just like to stick stuff on. Ooh, guitar picks. No worries, man. I suffer from terminal whiteness. I can't sing, dance, or play. So there's no worries on my end. So <clears throat> I'm just I just. Picks—that's just cool. I'm gonna have to tell my team to start leaving them up on my thing. Makes me feel good, anyways. I don't know. You know what's a lot of guys? A lot of guys that are my age, when they when they were kids, when they grew up, they wanted to be cops or policemen or something like that. Man, I wanted to be a rock star. But then that terminal whiteness thing came in, and I knew I was in real trouble. So that was gonna be the case. I want to tell you what a great pleasure it is for me to be here um, for a bunch of different reasons. we uh, Carol and I and my wife We love Wendover Hills Church We love what you guys are doing here um, And yeah we Getting to know Tom has been an incredible privilege for me And uh, You Guys are blessed to have him as your pastor I mean that And um, he's a man of great vision A man who loves Jesus And who is going to do great things here In Greensboro, North Carolina But only Only If you buy into the vision that he's that I know he's given to you that I know he's bringing every week that I know he's committed to Um, it's also a bonus that we do get to see our our daughter our baby girl And uh, yes, we are excited Uh, it's funny. I come from a family of men. I have four three brothers My wife has two sisters. She comes from a family of women two daughters And uh to have a grandson. Wow They were talking about they were talking about, uh painting colors in in the bedroom. And me, black and gold, man. (laughs) Booer, I knew you'd appreciate that, man. So that's cool. But anyway, let's let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for uh, all that you're doing here. Thank you for all that you're doing in us. I can't help but get past, Lord, the verses of that last song. Our hope resides in you. And uh, that is the only place it belongs. And God, I pray that you would open the eyes and ears of our hearts this morning as we bring forth your word. It's going to strike many of us in different ways. But nevertheless, you tell us that it never comes back void. And I pray that each and every person in this place just, just opens it up, just lets you minister to them in the place where they're at. That's the thing that you promise us, that you will meet us where we are. But your great promise is also that you will never leave us there. And we hope that stands true today and we place that trust and that faith and that hope in you, in Jesus' name. After witnessing firsthand the devastating effects of civil war, oppressive oppressive regimes, natural disasters, a guy named Palmer Chichen has observed that the Hebrew people have a special way of coming together to help people deal with pain loss, and grief. This is what he writes. He says they call it Shiva, which means seven or sits of seven. When there's death, the closest family members come together, the father, mother, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, spouses. They come together and they sit. But they don't sit alone. All their friends and family come and they sit with them. And they sit until the healing Begins. They sit because they want you to know that you are not alone in your sorrow. They sit together for seven days. And here's what I love about the seventh day. Everyone in the community comes on the seventh day and they walk with them around the block. The subtle message is this. You can begin to live again. And we know that you hurt and we hurt with you but you can heal over. This reminds me of the best parts of the book of Job. When Job loses everything in the beginning of his story, his closest friends come and they sit with him. They sit with him silently and they simply grieve. They mourn for him. They weep with him. They let him know that he is not suffering alone and that they are there for him. It is perhaps the greatest thing that we can do for other people who are suffering through terrible hurt and devastating loss to simply be with them and to be there for them. One other thing here, and I think it's a big one. You'll notice that on the seventh day, they invite the community. And I believe this is no accident. I think that this is a big deal because by inviting the community... God is showing those outside of the family, outside of the immediate community, how his people live together and are there for each other. In the New Testament, Jesus makes reference to this in John 13 when he tells us that the world will know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another and are willing to live for one another. God has a way of taking broken and hurting people and bringing them together, unifying them, and making something strong and beautiful. He is the master of taking broken, hurting people and unifying them into something great, into something significant. All we have to do is submit ourselves to him. The title of my message today is Signed God. Now, don't worry, it'll make sense by the end of the message. In John chapter 17, what many of us know as the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays to his Father. My prayer for them all, my prayer for all of them, excuse me, is that they will be one, just as you and I are one. One with God and one with each other. In fact, we could sum up this verse by saying this. If you have a message outline, you're taking notes, you're going to want to write this down. Jesus desires oneness. Very simply put. The last thing he did with his 12 before he went to the cross was to pray for oneness. For them to be one with God and one with each other. So, what does oneness look like? How does it flesh itself out? Well, let's take a look at a passage from Romans chapter 15. Here, Paul describes what I believe to be a pretty good model for biblical oneness. Before I do that, however, I just want to kind of set the stage a little to kind of give us an idea of where Paul's going to be coming from when he speaks to this. If you're familiar with Romans at all, you'll know that it is, it is Paul's great theology. In it, we learn where, I mean, the great theology of the faith, the, 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 the theologies of salvation, of justification, of sanctification, of glorification. He talks about Israel and their place in this whole thing. But then he talks about, okay, we've come to all this. We've seen God through his grace do great things. But now how are we to live together? How are we to do this how are we to live transformational lives? How are we to be a transformational people? How are we to be a, a transformational community to the world that he's called us to be? And what he does is in chapter 14 in particular, he tells us that, you know what? And understand this, where Paul's coming from. It's, what's going on there is not a heck of a lot different than what's going on in communities throughout the world, throughout the United States, throughout North Carolina, in places like Greensboro. And I can say, especially in places like Asheville, North Carolina. It's a diverse group of people with diverse beliefs coming from diverse places and different ways of doing things. Whenever you pull a community of people together, however many number of people are here today, we're all in different places. We've all had different experiences. We all come from different families of origins. We've all got just, we bring baggage with us and we bring strengths with us, but we're different. And we come from different places. And one of the things that Paul tells us in chapter 14 is that, you know what? You guys need to learn to live with one another. You need to learn to be gracious with one another. You need to learn to understand that one little thing that maybe the guy sitting next to you does that really drives you crazy is irrelevant when it comes to reaching people for Jesus. When it comes to fulfilling the mission and purpose that God has given each and every one of us through Jesus Christ. We have to be willing to overlook stuff. We have to be willing to put away our own agendas. We have to be willing to accept people where they are. We have to be willing to put aside our wants and needs and desires so that we can come together as one to serve and glorify God, which is really what we're here for in the first place. Well, Paul goes on in chapter 15, and what he really does here. In 15, he, he's really beginning to close the book of Romans to a degree, of his teaching in Romans, as he really does it in the form of a prayer. Let me read it to you, starting in verse 5. This comes to us from the New Living Translation. May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each, with each other, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Here's what he's saying. All of this stuff that he's talking about, all this patience and encouragement, all this harmony with one another, it's expected of us. He says, as is fitting. What he's really saying is, you know what, man? This is expected of you. This is what Jesus gave his life for. This is the community that you are to be out there. Then he goes on to say, Then all of you can join together with one voice giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in other words, because of, therefore, accept each other just as Christ accepted you so that God will be given glory. When we're willing to accept each other as Christ accepted us, which means as is, not with some preconceived notion. Jesus met us where we were. And he loved us enough not to leave us there. But as we look at our brothers and sisters throughout this room and as we look at the church in general and as we seek to touch and reach the people outside those doors, that's what we need to be doing. We need to be accepting people as they are. And by doing so, we give God the glory. Remember, that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promise that he made to their ancestors. He came also to the gen- so that the Gentiles may give glory to God for his mercies to them. That is what the psalmist said when he wrote, For this I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. In another place it is written, Rejoice with his people, you Gentiles. And yet again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Praise him, all you people of the earth. In another place, Isaiah said, the heir to David's throne will come and he will rule over the Gentiles. They will place their hope on him. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then, 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 you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul had a big issue back in the day in that he was dealing with 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 Jewish converts in his church, but he was also dealing with Gentile converts. And you might (laughs) you can only imagine some of the tension that went on there. The Jews thought that the Gentiles should become Jews first and then become Christians. But Paul taught that well that's not the case. It's by grace you were saved. It's no different. In, in, in many ways, it's no different than what we deal with. I mean, when we, when, when we invite people into our community, when we invite people to become a part of our churches, we face much the same tension. We have people, once again, as I said earlier, that are at different stages in their spiritual walks, in their spiritual journeys, in their pilgrimage, if you will. We have to learn to deal with that. What Paul is praying for what he's describing in this passage is a practical look at oneness. And I believe, I believe that oneness is synonymous with unity, especially in this context. Oneness is unity of mission, unity of purpose, unity of vision. Jesus and his Father are one in mission, purpose, and vision. And that's what he's seeking from us. It's his overarching desire for us to be one just as he and his father are one. If you were to ask Jesus what drove him, I believe that he would say that it was his desire to please his father and to glorify him. Jesus was willing to submit to the will of his father. Actually, I think it even transcended that. It went beyond that. In his desire to be one with his father, he was actually willing not to simply subordinate his will, but he literally made his father's will his own. In other words, he was willing to take his will, set it aside, and take the Father's will upon himself. Paul encourages us to take that same attitude towards each other that Jesus had. Listen again to verse 5. He says, May God give this patience, or excuse me, may God who gives this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting, once again, for followers of Christ. It's a willingness to live for each other that is the foundation of oneness. And here's how it fleshes out. Here's some practical things that we need to do in order to achieve oneness. First, oneness requires an open heart. Oneness will require us to take a fresh look at how we do life we will have to be willing to do some things that are foreign to us, perhaps even difficult for us. Maybe some things that we've never even considered before or at best, perhaps, if I can say this, paid lip service to. So where does that start? Romans 15, two. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. In John I always get these two mixed up. It's John 15 and John 13, where, where Jesus says, love one another as I have first loved you. I think it's John 15 where he says this. No greater love does anyone have than this than they lay down their lives for their friends. Many of us understand the meaning of that. I mean, the literal meaning of that. What, what it's like saying, well, you, you know, die for your friends, of course. And that's probably true. Think of this we live in the United States of America. Pretty safe place so far for people of faith. There are very few of us that are going to stay within the United States. They're going to be called to die for someone else because of our faith. So I think what Jesus is calling us to do in a place like this is when he says to lay down your life for your friend doesn't necessarily just simply mean to die for someone. It also means to live for someone to set aside your wants and needs and desires so that you can please someone else, just as Paul said here in the second verse of chapter 15. I always put it th- this way. This, guys are kind of thick this way, so they're wondering, well, what does he really mean? Well, here, let me put it to you this way. You guys will be able to relate to this on a, on a, on a, on a Sunday. Laying your life down, say, for your wife, to live for your wife, means that this afternoon at, say, 1 o'clock, you hand her the remote and say, here, dear, it's all yours. I can say that today because it's the Steelers' bye week. (laughs) That's what it means, though. It means to be willing to take the things that you love most, the things that you desire most, and just say, you know what? I need to serve someone else here. Here's how, we start by, here's how we start doing this. Here's how we start pleasing our neighbor for, our, for his good and building them up. We start by having an open heart towards each other. Listen again to verse seven. He says, therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given the glory. Once again, we lay our lives down for them. We express a desire to live for them, to see them grow, to see their needs be met to see their dreams and aspirations become true and work towards those. Consider the wants and needs of others ahead of your own and don't try to mold others into the image that you believe they should be. I say that a lot, especially around my church in Asheville because we need to hear that a lot. You see, that's called selflessness and selflessness doesn't come naturally to us. Here's the deal. Even when we do things for others, we are often tacitly seeking our own ends. We are seeking to more or less grind our own acts. We kind of ask the question, well, what about me? What's in it for me? Sometimes I see this within the church. An unwillingness by people to do or become part of something because they simply don't see what's in it for them. I'll often hear, well, I'm not getting anything out of this, so I'm not going to participate in that anymore. Or here's, here's a favorite. At least I can say, for me as a pastor, this is the one that always gets my goat. Well, I'm just not being fed. Here's what Jesus had to say about that. This comes from John 4. He says, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You want to be fed? You want to see great things happen in your life? You want to feel fulfillment and significance like you've never felt before? Die to yourself. Take his will upon you. Do the work that he has sent you to do. Live the life that he has called you to live, which is to live for someone else as opposed to yourself. And you know what? A funny thing happens when we lay ourselves down for the will of God. He always finds a way to meet all of our needs, practical or otherwise. You know what? As a teacher, I can say that I get infinitely more out of crafting a sermon than I can imagine I would get out of spending that same amount of time in personal study. And I'm sure, that, I'm sure that many of you, when you've used your gift in the past, can say the same thing. You see, God has a way of rewarding a labor of love in ways that we don't often consider. Perhaps the greatest reward is one where we get to see another person overcome a hurdle in their walk with Christ because of our efforts and because we sought their well-being ahead of our own. Perhaps we get to see that light bulb finally go off after a long struggle because we selflessly poured ourselves into another person without regard for what was into it or what was in it for us. When we are willing to put ourselves aside in our desire for oneness, God will use us in the redemption of our loved ones and friends. And trust me, there is no greater nourishment that one can receive. One, this also requires us to have an open heart towards the world. One of the difficulties and perhaps one of the greatest frustrations that the Apostle Paul had to deal with on a regular basis was the religious and cultural chasm between Jewish and Gentile followers. You know, throughout the New Testament period, Jewish followers looked down on Gentile followers, often believing that for Gentiles to become true followers, just as I had said a little bit earlier, they had to first become Jews, then convert to Christianity. Fact is this, most of them didn't. Paul didn't believe that. Not so, he said. In fact, he believed and wrote in many places, but let's focus on the passage in in Romans 15, where he said, remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises that he made to our ancestors. In other words, what he's saying is, of course he's for you. He's one of you. He came for you. But then he goes on to say, but he also came so that the Gentiles might give glory to God for his mercies to them. In other words, he came for the whole world. Here's a... Here's a big deal. And I hope, I was going to say, I hope I don't offend you by saying this, but actually I hope I do. That world out there, God doesn't hate it. He loves it. Congregational participation. For God so loved, thank you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17 goes... For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that through him, the world that he so loves would be saved. Given the issues of the day, Paul was preaching oneness to the church at Rome. He was preaching that there was no difference between them, Jew and Gentile, in the eyes of Christ, and therefore there should be no difference between them in their eyes as well. Now, you might ask, what does this have to do with having an open heart for the world? And I would tell you everything. Here's what I mean. Unfortunately, many followers of Christ place little value in reaching the world. They place little value in reaching them with a message of grace and forgiveness that is the gospel. Once again, they may pay lip service to it, but when it comes to rug cutting time, that's pretty much all it is. When they realize that reaching the folks around them requires them to get their hands dirty or associating with folks outside of the church family, all of a sudden the tune changes. All of a sudden they want to leave the work that is evangelism up to the missionaries. Newsflash! You and me were the missionaries. You've probably heard this said. Heck, your pastor's probably said it. The church... You and me, we're God's plan A, and there is no plan B. We're it. God's placed all His hope in us, He's placed His eggs all in one basket, and that's the church. There's no way around that. So, biblical oneness requires an open heart to the world around us because reaching the world was the mission of Jesus Himself. And we cannot be one with him and not buy into his primary mission. You see, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 19 that he came to the world to seek and save that which is lost. And we have to understand and grasp the fact that Jesus loves the people who are outside those doors. The ones who may never set foot into a church. The ones who were stinking drunk last night. The ones who slept with folks that they shouldn't have. The ones who woke up this morning with that same hole in their hearts, run wondering if they will ever find what it takes to fill it. Jesus loves them. And his heart aches for them. And his overwhelming desire for them is for them to quiet the noise in their lives long enough so that they can hear the voice of their creator calling out to them, calling them home. Our hearts need to ache for them as well. We need to be doing whatever it takes, short of sin, to reach out to them, and help them hear the message that the one who created them and loves them with a love that is unfathomable, wants them to come home to him because only he can fulfill their greatest dreams and desires. That, what I just described to you, that is a unifying mission. And it's why I personally am committed to it and any church that I lead will be committed to it institutionally. Our mission, our reason for existence, and when I say that, I mean the church in general, not just Legacy Church. Any church in general. Our mission and reason to exist is to reach the people around us with the gospel. Period. For me personally, for our church, it's to make disciples of Jesus Christ in Asheville, North Carolina, and beyond. Oneness requires a heart that is open to the world and for us to maintain that over the long term, we as individuals must, must never forget where we've come from. We must never lose sight of who and how we were before we had a life-changing encounter with Jesus of Nazareth. That'll keep us humble, which leads to my next point. Oneness requires an attitude of humility oneness requires selflessness and selflessness requires humility. Once again, we must be humble in our attitude towards each other because that's the way Jesus acted towards people. We need to remember that we're not here to impress others or to win accolades from them or to prove prove to them, I should say, that we are the walking embodiment of Jesus Christ here on earth. Listen to Paul. I know that I know that you guys just went through the book of Philippians. Let me, let me quote some, something here from, from, uh, from Philippians for you. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together in one mind and purpose. Here's the money verses right here. Verses, chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others as well. We are to live our lives. When it comes to, when it comes to, when it comes to this kind of stuff, we are to live our lives for an audience of one. And you know what impresses him? Obedience. Obedience. Obedience to his command to love God passionately. Our neighbors as ourselves and each other as he first loved us. That'll keep us humble too, because I got news for you. There's no way in the world we can do this without his intervening grace. Keeping it humble is what Paul is talking about in Romans 12 as well. Take a listen. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And I love how we, the New Living Translation puts this. It's almost like an afterthought. It's like, and oh, by the way, don't think you know it all. Our desire to emulate him and become one with him and each other impresses him far more than how many verses from the Bible we can quote. One last thing. Oneness is the signature of God. Listen to John 17. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. See, in that expanse of scripture, in John chapters 13 through chapter 17, he lays it all out of what this thing is supposed to look like. He tells us that the love that we have for one another, in other words, the oneness that we have with each other, will prove to the world out there that we are his disciples. He also says, as he closes this out here, He says that when we experience this unity that he's talking about, when we experience this oneness, the world will know who Jesus is and will know that the Father loves us as much as he loves Jesus. You might think to yourself, well, gee, what what does that mean? What it means is, is that, you know what? Aside from God, aside from the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, there's no way in the world we can do this. The only way we can do this is to submit and and surrender ourselves to God and say, "God, I this guy sitting next to me. I don't I don't know him, but what I know of him, I don't particularly like. Help me become one with him." I'm going to share a quick story with you before I close. Good friend of mine. He was my best friend in the world. He became that. <laughs> if we'd have met outside of the context of church, outside of the context of, of, of serving Christ, we probably would have never even given each other a second thought. I probably would have said, ah, guy's a dork, you know? Lord only knows what he would have said of me. But you know what? We had something in common. And you know what that thing in common we had was? It was Christ. And it was the vision and mission that he had given us. Each of us desired to serve Christ. And as we got to know one another, and as we came together in our desire to do this, we got to know each other, and we found out that we had a heck of a lot more in common than we would have ever thought otherwise. To this day, He's the guy I call when things are really hard. And I can say the same for him. I mean, it's funny is, is that he, 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 when we get together, he says, you know, Connor, I'm glad we get together a couple times a year. I need you to help me get my sh- head screwed back on again. And he does, I said, you do the same thing for me, man. And what I'm hoping is, That when other people see the way and the desire and the love that we have for each other, that they will think, you know what, man, I know these guys outside of themselves and there's no way these two would be this way aside from the common thing they have in Christ. That's what he wants from us. That's what he wants from us as a faith community. Jesus himself experienced it. He had his 12, but he also had Peter, James, and John. And then he had the one who was John. It's funny that Jesus' best friend on this earth was a teenager. Life in the kingdom of God is not meant to be lived in a vacuum. It's not just me and Jesus or you and Jesus. Oneness means that we're all in this together. And together we will glorify God by the way that we live in community. The way we do life together is the greatest witness to a broken and dying world. I really believe that. The Father in us, us in the Father, all through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And us, you and me, you and me, together, seeking the glory of God by the way that we can love and care for one another. By the way that we seek his will together by the way that we fulfill his mission and purpose together. It will require us to commit to the transformational process. It will require us to use what one of my favorite authors and teachers, John Ortberg, calls discerning effort. Oneness is something that we must seek constantly and order our lives around so as to make it happen. But, but, as Christ tells us, there is no greater aspiration in this life, no higher calling to which we can attain than to be one with our creator and with those whom he created. May God grant you grace and peace as you seek together oneness, the common goal of pursuing his mission, purpose, and vision for you as individuals and together as a faith community. Let's pray. God, it's hard for us to do this. It's hard for us to submit to anyone or anything, especially each other. Yeah, we might be able to do it for you sometimes. Sometimes. But for another person, it's extremely difficult. But nevertheless, you call us to do exactly that, to surrender ourselves not simply to you, but to one another. God, my deepest prayer for everyone in this place today is that you would show us how to do that where we live, in our homes, in where we do our work, in the marketplace, show us how to be one with each other so that we may reach the redemptive potential that you have for each and every one of us as individuals and together as a faith community. It's going to require your grace, as is everything that we do. But Lord, we ask that you would pour that upon us as we seek to fulfill the mission, purpose, and vision that you have placed in each and every one of our lives so that we may be that which you created us to be. In Jesus' name.